You not telling your parents about us is a choice that you made. It is not that simple. Do you know how painful it's been to watch the person that I love choose to hide me? I am not hiding you. I am hiding me. Okay? Hello, and welcome to a very special mini bonus episode of You Should See the Other Guy. This is my first time doing the intro, and I feel daunted. I am Samantha, and today we have with us, a royal us, because my co-hosts have abandoned me, much like Harper abandoned Abby in the movie that we're discussing in this mini-sode the happiest season no not the happiest season happiest season anyway i'm joined by returning guest emily vanderwerf critic at vox.com all-around writer extraordinaire co-creator of arden podcast hello emily hello it's so good to be here and i'm so happy to be on this not mini sode this maxi sode of oh. your show <laughs> Uh, so, uh, are you committing now to a four-hour-long discussion of uh, I'm Harper? I'm committing to a five-hour discussion of the character Harper from the film <laughs> Happiest Season, written and directed by Clea Duvall, also written by Mary Holland. And Mary Holland, I have discovered from Googling, is Jane, right? Yes. Is that yes, correct? Yes, she is. Yes, so she is. She is like the, the MVP of this movie for me. Uh, co-writing I, heard, and yeah. being the most mm-hmm. endearing character. I've heard that from so many people. Yes, she's a, she's a lot of fun. Well, let me give listeners some context on how our little mini-sode came about. A couple days ago on Twitter, you said, in general, I agree with the queer hashtag discourse. Important. Hashtag discourse, you know, for discoverability. <laughs> it means people <laughs> looking for discourse will be able to find this tweet. Um, but you said, but sometimes I think it's worth interrogating our core assumptions so I am prepared to say that Harper was my favorite character in Happiest Season, and I'm glad capitals, capital letters, seems like you were you were fishing for people like me to come out of the woodwork, that mm. she got a happy ending. I have mm. to live my truth. Mm. And then you said you have incredibly elaborate reasons for them and that you wanted to turn it into content for Vox.com. And, Which I have yet to do. <laughs> will it happen? Can I release this timed with your essay? So I don't no, I like... don't know if it. I don't know if it will. I had talked about doing a a uh, uh, crosstalk with another colleague who hated Harper, mm. uh, but I don't. I don't know if it's going to happen. We haven't uh, actually sat down and done it. So, well, well, I wouldn't say I loathe Harper like to an extreme, but maybe I can play a bit of that role for you right. if mm-hmm. if you need that because we did we covered it on a on a main episode of the show, not a maxi episode, just a a normal hour and twenty minute episode, and we were very critical of Harper, um, mm-hmm. and as I think a lot of folks who watched it are. So I wanted to just dive right in and say. Why is Harper your favorite character? Well, to start with, she's one of the great characters in the history of cinema. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's a bit much. It's not. I don't actually think that. Um, I think what people. I think that Happiest Season. I think the response. I think the film Happiest Season has a number of problems. I was extremely surprised that the response to Happiest Season focused on those problems being. Harper is a jerk. Harper and Abby should not have gotten together. Abby should have gotten together with the the Aubrey Plaza character, Riley. And in a vacuum, I understand these points of view, but I was so taken with Harper. Harper was legitimately my favorite character. Harper was 
an expression of a kind of queerness combined with a kind of like just general adult regression to childhood that I haven't seen in quite that fashion on screen in it, especially in a major studio film um, in, in quite some time, if not ever. But I think the response to the film is driven by two things. I think there is a protagonist problem and I think there is a genre problem and I will tackle those each one at a time. This is great. I feel like you're <laughs> touching on like the two areas that I would identify too, which is I feel like Harper would honestly make a more interesting protagonist if yes. that's what you're about to say with the protagonist problem. Basically, we are seeing this film through the eyes of Abby and that is because Abby is in some ways a representative of uh, the, your average queer woman in the year 2020 who either doesn't have family issues or has resolved her family issues or just doesn't worry about it because she's cut off her family or whatever. And she's very with it. She's very, she's very with it. She's very caught up on the discourse if you will, she knows what she wants is Harper. I sort of think about this movie as structured loosely like a Christmas Carol, <laughs> um, which is to say, this is a film about three different ghosts <laughs> attempting <laughs> to convince Harper of whatever path she should be on. Riley, of course, being the ghost of Christmas past. The ex-boyfriend. Yes, yes. Abby being the ghost of Christmas present. And Dan Levy is basically there as, you know, he's he's the future of of the queer movement. Um, let's say queermas instead of Christmas. Wow. Um, which automatically underlines the point here, which is that Harper is the one who goes on a journey in this movie, but we are seeing it through the point of view of someone who is from a more 2020 progressive perspective. And I think, I think that is the point of the movie. I think the point of the movie is saying, no, these coming out stories aren't over. People are still losing their families because of coming out. People are still in intense angst about coming out. And you look at the big, the big scene, the big uh, fantasy ending, the Christmas thing, the Christmas miracle that ends this film has nothing to do with them getting back together, though. Yes, they get back together. It has to do with Harper's family accepting her after like 12 hours when we all know that wouldn't happen. That's the fantasy of this movie, though, is that you can, in essence, have your girlfriend and have your family and you won't have to choose between the two. And like, again, if Harper's the protagonist, I think a lot more sense to people. But at the same time, I think it is a really interesting point of view choice to make Abby the point point of view character to a different protagonist story and i get like why people think that harper is really crappy to abby i agree with that but i also am sort of like what what were you expecting from the genre which brings me to my second point which is the genre problem Happiest Season is, broadly speaking, a Christmas movie, but I think people are thinking of it as a Hallmark Christmas mm. movie, which is, in essence, a movie where two people uh, have very lighthearted scrapes. There's nothing very serious that happens, and then they get together at the end, and everything is happy, and everyone is happy. Happiest Season is actually in a different line of Christmas film, which um, an, an obvious comparison point would be something like The Family Stone, which is a large family comes home for Christmas. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of yelling at the end. They all sort of regroup because it's Christmas and we love each other. And that's what you do. And Happiest Season is in that vein, but I think it is telling that the movie that is name-checked several times is It's a Wonderful Life, which this movie has structure in common with. This movie is also about finding out what would happen if something that was very key to your identity, in this case, your relationship, had never been born. 
what if you were just like a person who was in this space and had to just sort of see this thing and watch as it was taken further and further away from you? What would you do? And like, It's a Wonderful Life is a brutal movie for yeah. like four fifths of its running time. And then you get to the last 10 minutes and it's just catharsis. I don't think Happiest Season earned its catharsis the way It's a Wonderful Life did, but It's a Wonderful Life is one of the greatest films ever made. So I don't know that it would have been possible to, but I feel like the, we deserved a happy Christmas movie people. While I don't think they're wrong, I think there's room for that. I think they are misunderstanding the intentions of this film and its genre. And that is why Happiest Season and the character of Harper are two of the greatest things ever created and committed to celluloid. (laughs) Now you're making me sad that the movie didn't contain a scene of Kristen Stewart running down the street of this Pennsylvania small town shouting like, Merry Christmas, movie theater. Merry Christmas, you wonderful building and long i mean i would be surprised if they didn't film it you know um <laughs> gotta be on the deleted scenes somewhere I, I hope i think and i say this as someone who uh writes a uh a podcast where a queer romance is at its very center like the center of our show which we are constantly cognizant of is two women in a will they won't they and when are they going to get together when are they going to kiss when aren't they going to kiss you know when are they going to sleep together etc because the will they won't they trope was constructed for heterosexual people like you can do a queer will they won't they but 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 standards of standards is the wrong word but the barrier to sleeping with someone in a queer space is so vastly different yeah. from the barrier it's, yeah it's like they will and then they won't and then they will again and then yeah. they will with that person's friend yeah exactly so like we are constantly consciously aware of the way in which this is in attempt to queer a heterosexual trope which is also like we this season did the um obstacle relationship and we had to spend a lot of time sort of justifying to ourselves why it doesn't just become like a polyamorous triad these are three queer women you know (laughs) like why don't they just all start sleeping together and you know we came up with a justification for it we came up with a reason for it i do think that there is room and usefulness in queering these um, these archetypes, these tropes that were basically written for cishet people. But I also think that like when you do that, you get into a space where you reveal the limitations of those tropes. And I think that's some of what's happened to Happiest Season. Uh, to me, that's the flaw of this film is it is operating in a space where, you know, you want to have the happy ending and you want to have the conflict before it, but it is operating, it is also being pitched at an audience that is a lot more aware of the potential for codependency, of the potential for abuse, of the potential for just terrible, shitty action happening. And I think that's, I think that's driven a lot of the response. That said, I do think that there is a increased drive in um, queer storytelling toward relatively conflict-free storytelling. Mm. And that concerns me. As a storyteller, I like conflict. Conflict makes a story go. Like, I'll, I'll tell you a story from my own show, which is our first season, because it's a will-they-won't-they they, um show the two characters argued all the time because they are characters who figure things out by arguing with each other they're based on uh, beatrice and benedict from much ado about nothing in in shakespeare from much ado about nothing by shakespeare and those are two characters who argue just for the fun of it and our characters argue for the fun of it and we got a number of people who were like i like the first season i like the mystery i like the the romance i like the comedy why did they argue all the time they should be nicer to each other and you know we 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 made them less argumentative for the sake of it in season two which i think was the right call but it also was like have you have you have you heard of drama <laughs> you know yeah. like, have you heard of like how conflict drives a story forward 
I think because our lives as queer people in the United States, especially in the Donald Trump era United States, are so fraught at every moment with, you know, um, our rights being potentially taken away, our lives being on the line. There is this desire to escape into another world where everything is okay. Um, hence the rise of something like Shit's Creek, which I think is um, uh, an okay TV show. It's not my favorite TV show, uh, but I think has been a little overpraised because it gives people that sort of release of, oh, here's a nice place where bad things don't really happen. And that's cool. I'm glad that people get something out of that. But for me, it is kind of a dead end storytelling wise. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of Parks and Recreation where yes. in later seasons, especially every character just got what they wanted. All of their dreams came true. And, you know, I, I don't need it to be the wire in terms yeah. of like gritty realism, but I would like to see heartbreak and disappointment um, because yeah. not because like I want the characters to suffer, but because it makes the narratives and the plot lines more interesting. I mean, you do have, you do have that giant, um, that giant, uh, a sampler that you cross stitch that says Leslie note must suffer. Like I've seen it. So <laughs> yes, my secret project. I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think you're right that a lot of people, when they first heard the pitch for it, especially of like Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, holiday rom-com, they were picturing Hallmark, they were picturing Fuzzy, they were picturing the most important conflict in the movie being a slight misunderstanding that could be mm-hmm. solved in like 30 seconds of dialogue, but isn't for two hours for, mm-hmm. you know narratively complicated uh disbelief suspending stretching reasons and instead they got a movie that i think went to some pretty dark places like the way that harper denies abby in front of her family Uh at the end is like genuinely gut-wrenching it like made me wince in a way that like i do when i watch like a slasher movie you know yeah yeah i think again it's a it's it's a it's a genre question you know you would not blink twice at George Bailey doing that. He does that, you know, he does that to his family. He is that big of a jerk to his family. And it's a wonderful life. Again, it's a wonderful life is much better balanced tonally than this film. And I, that's a big part of why it works And this film struggles in places, but I certainly didn't sit there and think, you know, um, this is, this is a thing that I don't buy the characters doing. This is a thing that takes me out of the movie. This is a thing that, you know, and I also, I also fundamentally buy that Abby forgives Harper, you know, how hard is it? How hard is it to come out? Like, we all know that how hard it is. We all know how scary it is. And like, you've seen this family. And for as much as we sort of on the sidelines can be like, well, you know, she has a good life in Pittsburgh. Her and Abby can go be happy together and screw her family. It's easy for us to say that because we don't know them. You know, they're fictional creations, but for this character, they have to seem real. And like, yeah, you know, I, I... I get it. I get it. Um, because, and the problem, the thing that about this is I don't think the movie's that good. Like, I think it's, I think it's fun. I had <laughs> fun with it, but the reaction to it has been so wildly, like when I watched it, I was like, well, people are really going to key into the Abby and Harper relationship because that is the best written part of this film and then everyone is just like the stuff that people are praising is like the aubrey plaza character is jane are these characters who are more over the top comedic who aren't necessarily grounded and that may that may be because they're throwing the tone of the film off i don't know but like it's a very grounded movie about like what it means to be queer in the year 2020 and to have an unaccepting family and also to like sort of process the trauma that we all have as queer americans from the last 40-ish years of life here 
where like we have made great strides, but there has been pushback at every turn. And like the end of this movie is a fantastical version of a world in which none of that matters and all that matters is love. And like, I don't really buy it, but if you want to have a queer Christmas movie, that is not a bad fantasy ending. Yeah, it feels like the Dan Levy character is almost meant as like, uh, like a way to sort of bridge the gap between like the queer, very knowing audience and then like those who want just like a traditional Christmas movie. Right. And mm-hmm. I-, I think it kind of pulls it off, but it struggles to get there. Like, like mm-hmm. you said, it feels like there are moments where things have just kind of been duct taped together to, yeah. to get a Across the finish line mm-hmm. and it, it's a fun ride but it's it wasn't always a smooth one yeah and like i think um a lot of the time when i see uh criticism of a film like this one especially a queer film like this one a lot of that criticism is driven by i wish it had been this and that's fine like i i wish we had actually we did have a hallmark movie with a queer relationship and i watched it and it was pretty awful like <laughs> Was that the when it, Harry met Harry, or is that, no, was that the freeform one? It's um, it's it's called the Christmas House. It oh, features okay, a I've heard of that. it features a a couple where there are two cis men, and they hold hands and talk about adopting a baby, and like that's their plot. Um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. I I don't have a problem with wanting to have a story where nothing of consequence really happens, but I'll I'll say this as someone who's like toying with writing my own um queer Christmas romance. I sat down to start working on it. And then I was like, am I letting down the community by wanting to put like conflict in this? Mm. And I don't like, I don't know that there's a right answer to that, but like, I want to write a story about a trans woman who goes back to her hometown and falls in love with a hunky cis guy. You know, like, am I letting everybody down if she falls in love with a cis man? Am I letting everybody down if she goes back to her hometown and there's transphobia and people are mean to her and there's not an escapist fantasy? I'm not letting myself down because that's my storytelling in but I see the response to something like this and I'm like, um, maybe not. And yet my show, Arden, has had just tremendous amounts of response from people who feel very represented by the, our portrayals of queerness in that, which are incredibly complicated, incredibly nuanced. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not fucking tooting my own horn here. I, I, it sounds like I am, but it literally is just like compared to something like Happiest Season, we really like dig into what it means to be queer in America. And like, people really dig that. So I do wonder if it's a difference between film and television in some ways. Um, my podcast is a lot closer to a TV show than something like Happy Season, which is a movie. And I think in film, maybe I think we increasingly want escapism. And maybe in TV, we are a little more comfortable with conflict. I don't know. Yeah. But I do think there is, I, I do I do feel all the time, like as, as, a, as a queer person who likes stories about queer people who like have to kind of fucking work to overcome shit. If you're going to tell a story about being a queer person in America, I would rather like, I would rather queer, being queer not be that important to the storyline at all or that it be like or that it be such a focal point that like you couldn't tell the story about someone who wasn't queer you know Mm. yeah i think about a a film like tangerine for instance Mm -hmm. that to me is an example of a film where you're like you you, this is a story about how these characters queerness influences their lives you can't tell it without that so you have to double down on that but what that means is like telling a very real story about like conflict and discrimination and and violence some often yeah and like you couldn't do happiest season without it being about queerness. And in that case, you almost are obligated to tell a story that gets into the messy realities of it. Now, could you have done a story about two women meeting at Christmas time and then they have some like 
contrived conflicts that they don't get together until the very end when they bump into each other at the New Year's Eve party and they do a kiss. Yes. Like, I think I think that would be great. I think that would be fun. That's not this movie, though, you know, um, and holding it against this movie that it's not that is, I think, uh, you know, it's not what I would do as a critic. Let's say that. Yeah. Emily, I don't think it's just film because you brought up Schitt's Creek earlier and I'm going mm-hmm. to invite the angry emails and Twitter comments when I say I tried Schitt's Creek and it just did not click. And I've spent mm-hmm. the last couple years watching, you know, praise for it among people I like and respect. And I'm glad they're enjoying it. But it just didn't click for me because it seemed to settle into that like, well, just nice things are happening and there's yes. conflicts and emotional yes. growth, but everything is just so nice by the end. Yes. And I sort of worry that like, not, not just like this sort of escapism to avoid conflict, but we're reducing entertainment to like, to, to just aesthetic, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the way I see people post on Twitter about a movie where they just take four screenshots of the movie and they're like, oh my God, look at Riley and Happiest Season. Look mm-hmm. at like these outfits she wears. And it's like, yes, the visual component, costume design, all of these are components of a film, but the story is the heart of it. And I, I feel like there's a way in which our current like discourse around film and TV has has strayed away from like talking about like story and story beats and plots to just yeah. be like a wash in this like very goldfish like um like appreciation of like just the colors and sounds, you know, I think there is increasingly this belief that being aware of a trope's existence means that you have defeated the trope. And now you cannot be like, you're not like, um, um, you're now you're immune to its power. So if you look at this movie and you see Abby forgive Harper at the end, you're like, Oh, well, that's just a, that's just this trope. And like, they should have subverted that trope. And maybe I don't, I don't know that that's wrong, but you know, I've been alive in the world people don't just like give up on relationships that have meant a lot to them if the person who's disappointed them makes it like a really serious um, effort and good faith effort to fix it and like i come at this from the perspective of i've been married for fucking ever and like <laughs> my wife and i have had several occasions in which our relationship almost ended and then one person like blinked and was like listen i know this is my fault. I know this is my problem and I'm going to work to be better. And then we worked to be better. Like you look at the end of this film and Abby gives Harper one more chance. That's really all she does. And the implication is that Harper makes good on it because, you know, a year later they're together and engaged, but we don't see all the work that went into that. The story improving their relationship exists outside the confines of this film, which maybe is a problem, but also if the movie stopped short at, after their romantic kiss in a, in a, in a convenience store parking lot to have them sit down and talk about their grievances, that's not how storytelling works. It's just like, yeah. it might've been a good, good in example of moral instruction of like us being like, here's how a responsible couple should handle their issues. But it's not a story. It's a, it's, it's portraying, it's a portraying a thing that you want to see. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, I want to, I want to be clear that like, if that is your jam, especially if you are a storyteller, great. But for me, you know, there's such an intense focus on conflict resolution in some Mm. of these discussions. And I'm like, resolve the conflict. The movie's over. 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's the way it works. It's a three act structure. I've, as someone, I've been with my wife for eight years now. And so I can echo your sentiments of like <laughs> marriage is hard. Relationships mm-hmm. are hard. They're beautiful. And the reward of like knowing someone that deeply and that long is unparalleled, but they're, are they they're definitely, <laughs> are they though? <laughs> I I'm going to go on the record as yes in case my wife listens to this and also because I think it's true darling um and uh, but like those conversations that you have where it's like hey here's this issue in our relationship and let's sit down and have a grueling two-hour conversation about it where like mm-hmm. often one of you just wants to go to sleep because it gets so like difficult to talk about um like those don't make for good cinema. Like in cinema, you show the inflection points, the turning points, the, right. the you don't you don't show Arbor, Arbor. I've I've portmanteaued their names. You don't show Abby and Harper, yeah, sitting down at the loves and hashing it out for two hours in the car, which is what would happen in this lesbian relationship. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you um seen or read the play Slave Play? No. So slave play, this is so far off the, uh, out of the bounds of what we're talking Take about, but I'm just going to do a tangent. Slave play is about um, four couples uh, where one partner is white and the other partner is black. And uh, there's a, a couple where uh, the, I'm trying to remember the exact, like, like, like exact makeups of these various couples. Yeah. So there's a couple where there's a black man and a white woman. There's a couple where there's a, a white man and a black woman. And then there is a couple with, with two men and a couple with two women. And we see these little vignettes of the three of these couples um, acting out, you know, um, a role play in essence of um, Civil War era, uh, um, basically a, a sexy role play of Civil War era racials. And it's it's very uncomfortable making and it's very like, like it makes you feel queasy. And then for the mm-hmm. first time, you see two women who are in a relationship and they bring up chairs to force everyone to play elaborate psychological mind games with each other about what they've just experienced. And I was like, oh, I feel very represented by this. <laughs> yes. Let's all just process this for (laughs) hours until we all lose our minds. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's exactly what you're right, though. It's exactly what would have happened. They would have sat in the car. They would have talked for two hours. Dan Levy would have like wandered around the parking lot six or seven times. And like it would have just, you know, but that's not that's not this movie. It's also not a movie. I don't think I'm not convinced like you could probably do it. But it's it's more of a stage play or you could do it as a podcast. You could do it in a space where people are used to listening to two people talk that long. Yes, there are movies like that, but they tend to be movies that have uh, very cinematic elements like the before sunrise trilogy where every every movie they're in a new beautiful european city just walking around and talking about stuff and like that's uh that that is you know just not what's sitting in a love's parking lot yeah would be. let's make babette's feast except it's abby and harper eating cheetos in in the car of a love's parking lot right and like um, also i don't know what you could do there to uh, to honor that but also like i don't know that having abby run off and join riley for as subversive as it would be in some interesting ways like i can i can see that storytelling choice paying off i don't know i watched that and i like abby that much you know i don't i don't think that i i watched that movie and i'm like oh yeah great you you gave up and 
just ran off to somebody else. Like, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a fraught thing because the 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 bones of the rom com are built around you know the main couple getting together, and it's very hard to switch the main couple um, halfway through. So yeah, as Sadie, my co-host, pointed out. When you start a couple together in a rom-com, the audience is like instantly against it because usually in a rom-com, you root for the like thrill of discovery, like the thrill of newness. So starting out in a relationship is always risky. And I think when I first saw it, I thought that it could be fixed by giving us more prefatory material of like, here's Harper and Abby, and we've established more of their dynamic beyond them, like trespassing on a rooftop. And so that could carry you over to root for them throughout the film. But the more I think about it, the more like I keep coming back to the decision to have Abby be the protagonist instead of Harper. And like, Mm -hmm. it's sort of baffling to me. And and you've spoken about like the effect it has on the movie, but could we speculate about like why the choice was made? Why don't you want your protagonist to be the person who goes through the most character growth in this movie? Uh, Because I do think, I do think there is value in having it be, you know, this is a movie about Claire Duvall um, is that a movie about Claire. This is a movie where Claire Duvall is the director and writer and like apparently is drawn from some experiences she's had in her life. And like, if you um, know anything about Clea Duvall, she is much closer to an Abby than she is to a Harper. And like, I think that there, I think there is that element of it, but I think it's also like a useful, a useful way of viewing a story that I think when the trailer for this movie came out and people were like another coming out story, like, yeah, we probably don't need more coming out stories. This is very much a movie made by queer people for cishet people. And there's issues with that all around, but um, I do think that like this is a, a a movie about like you think you've processed your trauma, but you kind of haven't because you have you bet every time someone you love goes through it again. And like I think it's it's kind of a um yeah, I mean Harper does some really shitty things to Abby in this this movie, but if doing shitty things to a person means you break up with them, and if doing shitty things to a person, you know, for understandable reasons is not acceptable, there's obviously lines and there's obviously toxicity that can't be overcome and there's obviously abusive behavior that cannot be overcome and there's all of these things but like relationships aren't always great yeah (laughs) sometimes your partner treats you like shit i think yeah i think this the 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 does the push to make abby the protagonist to imagine it was driven by that's the part christian stewart was more likely to play but i also think it's because it's it's looking at this question of what does it mean to be queer um, right now and how do we sort of grapple with the fact that it means different things to different people in different places. I think a lot about where I grew up, there are no out queer people at all. There's, you know, sort of an underground network of like gay guys who sleep with each other and like they all know each other's name and that's kind of it. And like, yeah, sure. But... <laughs> Living in a a city like Los Angeles where queer life is very open and accepted and yes, there are issues and yes, there are times when things aren't great, but it is easy to just sort of be like, oh, this is a fact of life. And it's not in a lot of places. And there's a tension between that that we increasingly don't want to examine in our um, queer entertainment because it is it is assumed to be made for people who live in cities like the one I live in. Mm. But there's a lot of queer people who don't live in Los Angeles. No, for for real. I mean, as an openly trans woman from a Mormon family who went through like a years long period of like reconciliation and 
relationship establishing with my parents after coming out, like there are aspects of this that ring true where like Harper's experience feels closer to my own, especially the scene where Mary Steenburgen goes to talk to the dad who's feeling detached and distant and upset and is essentially like, are we going to have a family still or, or not? You know, like that to me is a very familiar dynamic in a lot of like Mormon families around LGBTQ kids where oftentimes the dad will be more doctrinaire or more worried about how it will affect how people in the congregation see him. Yeah. And then the mom will often be like, well, like, do you want your kids to come home for Christmas or not? You know? Um, And so from that respect, I like appreciate the way in which the movie, you know, it has Dan Levy using like queer theory 101 buzzwords in one corner, but it, it, the bulk of it is acknowledging that these traditions are still important to people and still important to many LGBTQ people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I think, um, I do think that uh, the point you made earlier about when a, co- when a couple is together at the start of a rom-com, people are expecting them to break up. I think that's, I think that's true. I think the mistake made with this film was selling it as a rom-com. It doesn't really follow the beats of a rom-com at all. Like, <laughs> This is a movie about a family, you know? This is very much a movie about like meeting your love your loved one's family for the first time and not being sure how you're going to fit in with them and that being at Christmas which is already a stressful fraught time. Yeah, I think the reason I like Harper so much is because she's the character she's the character in this movie who I am the most like. I spent I spent 15 years denying myself because I was so scared of losing my parents and then I came out and I did. And like, I like a movie where I can maybe imagine that my parents wanted me in their life more than they wanted their, their vision of themselves. And like, I don't fucking know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I, I just, yeah, the response to this movie has been very weirdly, I don't want to say traumatizing. It's the wrong word. It's not even triggering. It's just like, I've been really like upset by it in a way I haven't been able to understand. Cause again, I don't think it's that good of a movie. I think it's okay. But the response to it has just been like, it feels to me like for a lot of some of it is because I'm a queer storyteller and I like telling stories about queer people who have messy, complicated lives that are sometimes made worse by living in a society that's still dominated by cishet people. But some of it is just as a queer person, these stories speak to me a lot more than stories like Shit's Creek. And there needs to be room for both of them. But increasingly, it feels like the queer pop culture consumer only really wants to see stories where representation equals celebration, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, did you hear about this story? Um, uh, did you hear about the sci-fi story I identify as an attack helicopter? The, well, oh, yes. So, like, they took the common, like, transphobic right. meme and then, like, yes. reappropriated and used it as, like, a like a uh, story, right? right? Yeah. Like, yes. So it was written by a trans woman. Like this is a trans woman. Her very first thing under this byline from how well the story was written. I do wonder if it's like someone who has an established career and was publishing under a, uh, a male name. And now was sort of like, taking first steps toward living as themselves, published this story. To me, it was a tremendous piece of work. It was a tremendous examination of like the vagaries of gender, the vagaries of what it means to be alive, the vagaries of like what happens when you can artificially turn yourself into whatever you want. If you identify, like if you could literally identify as an attack helicopter, would you cease to be human? Would you cease to be man, woman, non-binary, whatever gender you sort of, whatever gender is yours? Like it was a fascinating science fiction thought experiment and people kind of hounded it off the internet. You can't read it anymore. 
Some of that is because the title is intentionally provocative in a way that I think maybe the author uh, would have rethought. But some of it was also just like a lot of people were reading it and being like, well, you can't say that, you know? Yeah. Or you can't say that in front of X audience where who will use it in X fashion. It's like right. playing five chess moves ahead to decide like what I got. Be yeah, I got in some shit earlier this year because um, I used uh, the term egg in an article, which is, if you haven't heard it, is, is a, a, um, a trans person I, usually. Yeah. Very yeah, familiar. I, I know you yes, have. I listeners. know you have. Yes. You and I email about people who are eggs all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, nobody, nobody's who's listening right now, I'm sure. it's a, But for those of you who don't know in the audience, an egg is a, a trans person before they've come out or before they've hatched, if you will. Um, and I, you know, I gotten some shit with that from trans people about like, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be using that word in front of the cis and maybe not, but like one of the ways I came to terms with myself was learning that an egg was a thing. Like you got to build bridges, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you can't like, and I, maybe that's, maybe that's a fault of my own as someone who, who kind of has to move between who can't, you know, I have a lot of queer friends who they spend most of their time with other queer people, which is great. I don't want to say that's bad. It's it's a wonderful thing. And like, I wish I could spend most of my time with other queer people. But like, to a certain degree, I have to exist in a world that involves both sides of that equation. And like, I don't know, I feel like demystifying whatever it is that we are is is usually the the better, better call. I feel like I'm not exactly saying what I want to say. So nobody no. hold me to any of what I'm saying right now. But. I- I feel like, I mean, egg is just such a useful heuristic. And it like, is. Yeah. I, I come at Happiest Season from the perspective of like, uh, you know, I've done a lot of journalism, but the work that I take the most pride in are the books I've written. And I've written three memoirs about different aspects of trans experience. And I would say that I'm primarily writing for a mainstream cisgender heterosexual audience in those books. Uh, do LGBTQ people read them and feel seen by them and represented by them and send me sweet messages about them? Yes. But I, I think I made a, a choice that like I cared about like the width of in breadth of the audience um, more than I cared about speaking to like uh, my Nero community. And that's not the right choice for everybody. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like what I found in doing that work is like the number of messages that I get from especially like trans women who are not clued into queer discourse, who have like stumbled across my book because it's on the front page of Audible or something, who then send me a message that's like, oh, like I ran across this and it like I was an egg and it cracked me like I've gotten so many of those messages and it's like I, I think there's value in this kind of art where it's LGBTQ focused but it does speak it does cast its voice to a bigger group of people and sort of invite them into the tent yeah yeah, like I'm working on um, uh, because we're just about done with season two of Arden. I'm working on a new audio fiction project, which is an adaptation of a, a novel I love, which is written by a trans woman, and she uh, specifically wrote it to like not worry about what cis people would think of it. And is this I'm Nevada? Trying... What's that? In Nevada? Are you doing Nevada? No, I'm not okay. doing Nevada. I can't. I can't say. I can't say what it is because I. I don't actually. Um, I haven't locked down the. I haven't locked it down yet. I need to like. I need to sit down and write some scripts. Which uh -huh. I'm. You know. I'm. I'm doing a great job of by talking to you right now, uh, but. 
Um, I'm literally like, that's the, that is the thing that I should be thinking about more is the way that I'm literally doing anything, but actually sitting down and writing recently. Um, I, and I'm trying to bear that in mind as I embark on figuring out the adapt, what the adaptation of it looks like. But at the same time, I feel like one of my strengths as a writer is uh, I can explain this shit to people who have no idea what it means, what it means. And like, uh, I just sound like I'm bragging about myself again, but like I get so many DMS from people on Twitter who are like, you are the only trans person I know. Or I am questioning my gender. Where do I start? Or, you know, whatever. And like, I think to a degree what I assume about my audience, it's people who people who don't know, but want to. I think that's who I'm writing for all the time. And or also um, <laughs> queer people who grew up in red states and have a lot of issues around it. Yeah, no, I think that's such a beautiful way of putting it. People who don't know, but want to. I think there's such beauty in writing for that that space. And gosh, I, I wanted to kind of like sort of drift back to happiest season a little bit. Never. Oh, but oh, yes, this was it. Yeah. So like Harper you know, part part of what I've been writing recently is like exploring. So, you know, I've written memoir, um, three kind of longish memoirs actually about trans experience. And I'm 33 years old. So to be honest, I don't have that much more memoir in me. But I've been working recently on a short essay for a collection where I'm exploring kind of like the relationships that I had from like 19 to 24 when I was still deeply closeted because I came out when I was 24. And um, those (laughs) those relationships were disappointing. I was I feel like I failed people. I feel like I failed to be a decent person in those relationships. And I feel like that was compounded by being in the closet in ways that can make me deeply relate to and empathize with Harper, not necessarily because I was like trying to keep a secret away from my family or whatever, but just because of the psychic anxiety of existing in that space where you're having to hide yourself and how that you can't just crush that pain like inside you like Jack Donaghy like crushes mind grapes or like whatever the trauma metaphor in 30 Rock is like when when you're in that kind of like psychic pain you often hurt other people too and that's I think an uncomfortable thing to explore and I think as queer people and as queer storytellers or maybe just like the queer discourse online there's a reluctance to just like admit that you were a shitty person in relationships that you've had that like relationships are hard and you can be toxically codependent with people or cheat on people and like it doesn't make you a a moral failure for your, your entire life it makes you a human fucking being it's honestly um yeah i i think that i was a terrible partner to my wife for a long time and that doesn't mean we had a bad marriage we had a pretty good marriage but i was not myself i was some guy who was like all the systems were slowly but surely shutting down I have not seen my wife's family as myself ever because of COVID and other reasons, but I'm just, you know, I, I really, um, was never as close to them as I could have been because I had this secret I was keeping from them. I've lost my parents, you know, I have, I have my sister who's wonderful, but like I have this whole thing in my life that is now functionally an empty hole. And like, I have been both the, uh, 
the wounded partner party in a relationship and the wounder in a relationship. And I think it's important to acknowledge that these things happen in fiction. And I think it's yeah. important to talk about the ways that we move, that we like deal with them because that's a space where we try on other selves and that's a space where we can build empathy and where we can build humanity. And like, you don't build empathy if it's a place where you're just constantly escaping to somewhere you'd rather live. There's a room, there's room for that. There should be stories like that, but that shouldn't be the only kind of story we have because I think, honestly, I think that holds us back as human beings. Yeah. I mean, that's. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think it speaks to some of the reaction to Harper, right? That like Harper is someone who wounds her partner and mm-hmm. and instantly people are like, throw her the fuck out. Like, forget yeah. about the fact that you've been together for two years. She's a gaslighter. She's, you know, all this. And it's like, yes. And, you know, I do agree with you that part of it is we didn't really get to see more of them as a couple. We saw a bit, but... um really the only time we get to see them is probably at their worst and you know um what if we just assume this is the worst time in their relationship what if we assume this is the worst it ever gets they are married for 60 years they have seven children if this is the worst it ever gets is that like is that worth leaving someone over your answer might be yes i want to be clear that yes is a valid answer to this question but every indication we get from the movie is that this is an abnormal experience that goes abnormally poorly if you really loved someone and had been with them for that long if you were in this abnormal experience that goes abnormally poorly and you almost give up and then she comes after you and says don't give up on me you'd give her another fucking chance like (laughs) yeah so are you saying this movie should be called saddest season to represent it being the saddest season of their relationship i will say this i think all good christmas movies are sad i think that the best christmas movies have this element of deep melancholy and sadness to them and um that's a thing that like listen i want to see some fucking christmas queer longing that's what i want to see um, i wrote a lot in my my review about this that like i would love to see a christmas movie about a queer found family coming together at the holidays and like that could exist someday that would be awesome um but i think you'd still have to follow some of these tropes of like the family gets back together there's a black sheep child the parents are not necessarily approving of certain things you know like yeah yeah I, I can see it already one of the one of the girls in the house she's trans and she's straight and she brings home her cis guy boyfriend uh-huh. <laughs> like everybody disapproves see you are writing you're writing on the show in real time i'm it's doing happening. it this is a story this, this yeah. has been productive after all yeah, yeah you did it I- or let's, you know how Stephanie Meyer did Twilight, where she just did it from the perspective of the other protagonist? Yes. So let's let Clea Duval do that with Harper. Let's do the movie over again. Because to me, I want to see Harper struggling to like want to seem like polished and perfect for her parents, but then also like see more of her thinking that Abby is perfect and precious and like she doesn't want to lose her because as it stands we get that through these moments of desperate dialogue where it hinges totally on Mackenzie's Davis Mackenzie Davis's ability to sell a line like you know you are my family or like you're the only one I want or you know that kind of thing and if I but if the camera followed her if it lived with her more we would see that and 
feel that in a way that I think would produce more traumatic tension than what we get. And I do think it's worth me pointing out that one of the reasons I do love this character so much, um, and I do love this character. I don't think she's one of the greatest characters ever written, but I do love her. It's because she's played by Mackenzie Davis, who I think is great. I love Mackenzie Davis in anything. So, Well, Emily, to wrap things off, I have a very important question for you, and it relates to my impersonation of Kristen Stewart as Jimmy Stewart running through Uh Bedford Falls. Uh Uh, Do you think we'll ever get to see Kristen Stewart go broad just like really madcap screwball i think it would destroy too much of what we like about her as a screen persona like um i wrote in my review that what's enjoyable about Kristen stewart is that she seems like she would rather leave the movie to go to anything else like in basically every movie (laughs) she's in like her whole persona is like being a little bit too cool for the film that she's in and i love that for her i don't think she could possibly like i don't think it would really work for her to go screwball and madcap in a way that we would buy um by the way happiest season Season two, because this movie was a big enough hit, I would not be surprised if there's a happiest season two. Should be about Harper and Abby's wedding. It should be a Christmas wedding. And um, yeah, that we should see it from Harper's point of view. We should see A, why she loves Abby, but also B, why Abby like lets her down. You know, mm. like that's another, this is another problem with who you choose as the protagonist is that like, you don't usually often get to see the protagonist like fuck ups. So yeah, yeah, they can just take turns disappointing each other in each movie until we get to, you know, the Christmas, uh, the Royal baby, uh, Netflix equivalent of, of this movie. Can I ask you one, can I ask you one plot question about this movie? Yeah, sure. Have you had a number of people in your life assume that at the end of the movie, Jane and the Dan Levy character are a couple? No. I've had several people say that to me and I'm like, no, he's a literary agent. He's the one who sold her book. So yeah, I, I feel like in a rom-com way, characters occupations are often established through very (laughs) sparse lines of dialogue so i can understand some people just missing entirely the fact that dan levy is a literary agent i often get to the end of rom-coms and don't understand what anyone i just watched does for a living and i think that's an intentional feature of the genre because they all have to have jobs that allow for massive amounts of leisure time um so that's uh yeah, what do the what do it. the what do the characters in our in our queer found family Christmas movie like? What what do they do for a living? Because it should be like believe. Oh, they're all just programmers. Never mind. <laughs> they're all PhDs in art history at Carnegie Mellon. It's just about a cohort of art history students at Carnegie yeah. Mellon. Gosh, that line made me laugh more than the comedy in this movie where they ask Kristen Stewart what she does. Oh, it's disappointing because it always, you you put such a fine point on it. We called her on our podcast, the lesbian Brad Pitt, where she's uh-huh. just kind of like, I have a vibe and a look and I'm here to serve you that vibe and look and you're here to see it. You're not really here to see me like act, you know? And that's, you know, she's a phenomenal actor, but it definitely is like her screen persona is a little bit too cool for the movie she's in. Do you, do you think it's like, Zeno's paradox though where she'll never hit the movie where she feels like it's cool enough to like really 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 try in or do you feel like even if she got cast in something she really loved and that was the most exciting film project of a decade she would still act just like a little too cool to be there have you seen clouds of sills maria no i think that's her best performance and i think that is a movie where she really comes out trying and like i think she has a number of performances along those lines it's just that her mainstream work tends to be like i'm Kristen stewart it hurts to look at things 
<laughs> she acts like a Twilight vampire sometimes. She which does. Is yeah. Ironic that she was cast in, as the human in those movies because yeah. I believe her as this disaffected person who can barely go outside. Uh, are you team Jacob or team Edward? Oh, we did like a four hour like podcast about it. I have a team. Uh, I think I settled on team neither because Edward is like 500 years old or something. Yeah. And uh, Jacob imprints on a baby. Were you, did you? And so I have never read the books and I had to watch all five movies in a weekend for this podcast. And I got to the baby imprinting scene and I was like, what the fuck? In part because they use a terrifying animatronic like baby with CGI layered over the top of it instead of just like getting a human baby extra. Have you have you dived into I've that seen, little negative? I've seen, yeah, I've seen it. Like, I think that if you're going to have a werewolf imprint on a baby like it might as well be a terrifying cgi baby you know yeah <laughs> like, that removes some of the like i don't know the ickiness of it not yeah. much but some <sighs> are you team do you have a side in the twilight movies i'm team whoever the anna kendrick character was oh yeah That'd okay. great. Uh, yeah 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 but the movie the movies at least just kind of forget about all of her high yeah, school friends exactly so- yeah they all just disappear <laughs> Um, no, I, I, yeah, I, um, I don't know. I feel like I spent most of this podcast being very angry at people who don't exist. I don't know. I feel very, um, out of the loop with the discourse sometimes. And I wonder if that is because I am misreading it or I wonder if that is because I'm misreading it or because, you know, when Martin Scorsese was like, I don't know, I don't really like superhero movies. And people were like, no, you have to like superhero movies. And like the side of, of that was like superhero movies are not choking out Hollywood was right. There are many different kinds of movies being made, but Martin Scorsese was also right that it's a lot harder to get money to make anything that's not a superhero. Yes. So they were both right. But it's just like there is this sort of like happy-go-lucky poptimism, if you will, that dominates a lot of social media discussion that sort of assumes that a work of art is its most obvious features. You know, it's, it's, it's surface level pleasures and I don't want to deny surface level pleasures. They're great, but there's gotta be more there. And yeah, too often there isn't. I, I mean, we recently did, you've got mail and I've mm-hmm. increasingly been persuaded by the argument that uh, the last good movies were released in 1999, which I know is not true. Literally, that's a generalizing statement that's intentionally provocative, but like, I honestly feel like something has shifted that feels hard to get back or hard to recover in like yeah. the current landscape. And yeah. you see a movie like You've Got Mail, you you sit alone without social media. And I've, I've got a small little projector at, at home and you put that on and you ignore everything else for two hours and you get lost in that movie about the world. And yes, there are these trappings of like Starbucks and early AOL, but like predominantly it's a story about like like connection and anonymity and like the soul of like a neighborhood and like who you are in your partnership and like who you wish you could be and it's like it, it has all of these layers that are like deep and profound and meaningful and then when you see it get talked about online when an anniversary for it comes up it's just like oh my god do you remember how the modem sound sounded and you've got mail oh my god do you remember you know like we just reduce it all to its trappings and we've like gotten away from like the soul of these things yeah 
Mm-hmm. I sound like a grandma just kvetching about it, but like I feel strongly about it. Oh, Samantha, I'm a few years older than you. And let me tell you, it just gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> just gets worse. Do you agree with in any sense with my 1999 dividing line? Or is that arbitrary based on my age and my like, you um, know? 1999 is a, a, just a seminal year in American film. So I, I get making that dividing point but there have been many great films made after there will be many great films made after we have this discussion and if nothing else we need to expand it to include uh two of the greatest movies ever made the matrix sequels i i'm open to reclaiming the matrix sequels i mean you know what the first the first matrix sequel is really fucking good and nobody and i will say it and nobody else will say it and as two trans women, we have to reclaim that film for our people. Yes, it's got to happen. It reminds me a bit of the discourse around like the Star Wars prequels where I, I've watched them recently and I don't think they're good movies. But what I like about them is they have like very particular things to say about like empire and fascism and like mm-hmm. um, and and power and lust for power uh, that like is zigging when other people were zagging like george lucas wanted to make a very specific thing that i don't think studios really would have wanted at the time i think people need to rediscover particularly of the first matrix sequel because it deconstructs the whole idea that there can be one white guy who can save the world and people went nuts hating it in 2003 because that wasn't what they wanted to hear and now we're like makes sense yeah yeah, I, and I, I have real appreciation, especially after 1999, for movies that like make those unpopular choices and that get yeah. lambasted. And then 10 years later, people are like, yeah, it was kind of right. Like, um, like Avatar, you know, I um, podcast I listened to, I listened to Chapo and they, they did just did an episode like sort of like re-looking at Avatar and sort of combating the idea that like, oh, it had no cultural impact or something like that. Oh, it had, and, and it say, had, a, it had yeah. a lot of cultural impact. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get like I get that it hasn't had Star Wars cultural impact, but it wasn't that kind of film, you know? Well, and part of their point was like, and not just to do the, their talking points over again, was the reason it had no cultural impact was because like it was a critique of American imperialism and militarism that was immediately followed by a wave of Marvel movies that are like literally mm-hmm. produced like in consultation with the Department of Defense. So like we just immediately like forgot about that because mass culture got replaced with like militaristic movies. Um, Samantha, and, yeah. should I go on Chapo? <laughs> Have you been invited? I've never been invited. No, I don't think they would well, invite someone who writes for Fox. <laughs> It's it's like a vampire situation. You have to be invited to to go in. As far as oh no, <laughs> if, if if asked, I will I will if asked, I will I will agree to the call. I uh uh yeah I I would I would go on Chapo. So if you are listening, Chapo, I will go on Chapo. I would love to hear you and um his name is Matt uh, talk about like TV, like the golden age of TV. Um, because I think I think there's interesting conversations happening right now around like premium television and like is is any of it meaning anything right now? All television is bad. 
All television is bad. Let's just admit it. Let's just get it out there. It's all bad. We hate it. You are, you are the TV critic of Vox.com and you are uh, saying now all television is bad. I actually, I actually like, like I actually have written very little TV criticism this year. Um, I have gotten um, kind of away from it because I just got, I got kind of burned out on it. Like I'm writing different stuff now and I'm feeling very happy and pleased about that. But yeah, like I, I, you know what I, people who are like TV just isn't very good right now. I don't disagree. It isn't very good right now. Some of it's fine, but most of it's just kind of undifferentiated streams of content designed to keep streaming sites alive. Yeah, it increasingly feels like a like a straw that I suck on to just try to like get some little bit of like pleasure in a world that's like not yeah. very fun to inhabit right now. Yeah. What's wrong with the world? The world seems fine. <laughs> oh, God. Nothing fundamentally will change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It, I, I don't know. That's, I feel like we've, we've wound down to a very depressing place, but it's hard not to. I mean, it's what Harper would want. <laughs> Harper would want to take us here to, to the parking lot of a loves travel stop. Do you uh, think your, do you think your listeners are going to listen to another hour and 10 minutes? <laughs> happiest season content statistically yes within (laughs) three days our happiest season episode became the most listened episode in the history of our podcast which has been running for like nine months now and like Uh we've got a we've got a small but burgeoning and and loyal little listener base going which i'm i'm proud of but happiest season was was a major draw in for for new listeners who are now uh they've now listened to an episode about the holiday and now they'll listen to an hour and a half of you and i nominally talking about happiest season but also just kind of like having feelings about like the state of queer discourse politics and like entertainment in the 21st century hell yeah let's just have feelings all over the place is there anything else you want to have feelings about I I, 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 do you have feelings about the holiday? <laughs> no, I've never, I've never seen the holiday. I've never seen it. Should I see it? No, I mean okay. uh, Sadie. Sadie would kill me for saying that, but she's not on this podcast to represent her viewpoint. But to me, it's sort of like um, a representative of like what what happened to movies after Y2K. Like Y2K didn't end the world, but it seemed to like end people like writing characters and like conversations that characters have and Mm. everything just became like, let's have a soundtrack and a montage and uh, like, you know, let's just shorthand everything because nothing means anything anymore. And it's all just tropes that we shuffle around. So why should we even try? Let's have a soundtrack and a montage. What song could we get to play right here? For our montage, um, holding out for a hero. Okay, perfect. Um, I mean, it is it is almost the Christmas season. It is almost the happiest season. Um, so I could just sing some public domain Christmas music while you like just do random things. Um, how how what, are you celebrating Christmas? What are how are you? What is your happiest season look like in your gonna, your queer world? I'm gonna I'm gonna sit at home because there's a pandemic. <laughs> Same. I have a four foot tall Christmas tree and two hairless cats, and we will we will sit together in our apartment and exchange one gift. And yep, yep. That will I'm be gonna, Christmas. I'm gonna sit at home, look at my wife, 
give her a present. She'll give me a present. Our cats will gather <laughs> around us. It'll be wonderful. I'm spending a lot of I'm spending a lot of money to make a podcast for no good reason. Um, let me tell you though, I got I got a hot I got a hot capitalism tip. Okay, you gonna tell me like a Black Friday deal? <laughs> What's about no. to happen? Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite purchases I've made this year: uh, Bath and Body Works. They have a candle called Flannel. Oh, just, that just sounds very lovely. Really one of the best candles around. Um, I, I highly recommend it. That's a capitalism tip. <laughs> that, that, that's your plug. This episode is <laughs> Bath. My plug will be Moonlight Path. Um, the Bath and Body Works scent. I'll get. I'll, I'll do an equally narrow one. An oldie but a goodie. I'm gonna see yeah. how long your first uh, your first um, happiest season episode was. Um, it was long. We had a, a wonderful comedian on Deanne Smith, and they they uh, they went in on Harper to um delightful effect and so i think this episode is a nice counterpoint um to it because Uh, i'm i'm persuadable i'm flexible thank you for agreeing with me samantha uh i i'm trying to i just want to be longer than that episode like i feel like that is i feel like that is my destiny then i can tell you that what your description of your christmas with your wife reminded me of was Mm -hmm. have you seen the joel edgerton um like virus movie it comes at night yes i have oh my god yes that is exactly what my christmas is going to be like yeah (laughs) to me like that was one of you know it takes a lot for these days for a movie to like really impress me with like an image or a scene or a like a a moment and to me the ending of that movie is like one of those moments where uh characters i won't reveal who for spoiler reasons i suppose are sitting around a table with the knowledge that like some number of them are infected and the the movie just ends on them like staring at each other <laughs> and that's what christmas feels like this year Yay! how wonderful the happiest season um have you seen the film have you seen the film the witch starring i oh let's talk about that because i like the go ahead the lighthouse but i was not a witch fan a oh w- i love w- the witch. witch fan i love the witch um I walked out of that movie about uh, a bunch of religious fundamentalists living in the middle of nowhere, being scared of witches and being like, I get why representation matters. It just, <laughs> it really hit me. Um, also, really, the ending of that movie, which I won't spoil, is a wonderful portrayal of what happened the first time I took estrogen. <laughs> <laughs> a goat came and told me to put my name in a book and I said, okay. And that book was the endocrinologist's office uh, waiting list. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we only have to make it like like three more minutes i think we can do this i hope Let's you leave it. all of this in i hope yes i will just... absolutely <laughs> i have no like need to make this like fast paced for for people we're a very boutique podcast the people who listen to it want this stuff and if they don't want it we don't want them uh <laughs> We have a very punk attitude about our our rom-com podcast, but my witch problem is like, I felt like the witch was a little too concerned with like, look how historically accurate we're being in a way that I think the lighthouse got over, you know? I mean, I guess, but um, something about the way that it was historically accurate really worked for me. 
Um, by the way, how do you feel about Allison Brie in Happiest Season? Oh, I, you know, I did a tweet about it that I got what you would call a coward's ratio, which for people who have not had their brains infected by internet worms means that people like the tweet a number of times, but they don't retweet it because they feel awkward about resharing that sentiment. And the sentiment was that there are some actors, I would say Alison Brie and um, Anna Kendrick, number among them, who are like LGBTQ allies, outspoken on that, but just something about their vibe, their mien, gives off some unintentional homophobia that like, I think Alison Brie was smart to capitalize on. <laughs> oh, I, I, I remember that tweet. I was very taken with that tweet. I liked it. I did not retweet it because I didn't you want to share that You are the coward sentiment. in the coward's <laughs> ratio. You're a part the, of the problem. <laughs> I get the coward's ratio a lot. I wonder if that's why I don't go viral more often. My takes are just too hot. My takes are just too spicy. It's not a way, good way to build. Fortunately, you've built a following through like criticism and people liking your work, you know? But uh, yeah, it's not a coward's ratios aren't a good way to climb to viral stardom. I don't and, care. Uh, I don't care about people liking my work. I want them to like my tweets. <laughs> it's a grass is greener on the other side situation, I suppose, because, you know, I, I think people have generally liked my 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 uh my writing but yeah i i feel similarly to you of like that that tweet was amazing (laughs) why didn't it get 1.4 thousand retweets like uh this is gonna be so petty but like you know how people do those like tweets that are like i think about this every day and like it's some like you know weird fact that they like found on a website and it gets like five million retweets (laughs) i once did i think about this every day and it was just a screenshot of my notes app that said uh my immortality <laughs> like just those words and i think it got like five likes <laughs> and everyone samantha. else was like is samantha okay <laughs> you know how are we not like the best friends how do we not just like do everything all the time together even though we live I, in different cities i think we became best friends and once uh the pandemic is over i'm riding the amtrak down there to los angeles and yay uh, i'll i'll write a memoir <laughs> about about a two-day Amtrak ride to Los Angeles. Have you ever done the Amtrak up the West Coast? Uh, I have not. I've done it down to San Diego, which is very nice. Um, But I've never done it up to like San Francisco or Seattle or whatever. We can kill some time with my Amtrak story, which is I did a like a 13-state book tour last year. And so I was sick of being on airplanes and I had to take a, a, a TV development meeting in L.A., And I thought I I live in Seattle currently. And I was like, you know what? I'm sick of planes. Why don't I mix things up and like take the Amtrak down? And Seattle to Los Angeles on the Amtrak is a very particular amount of time. It's 36 hours. It's just long enough that you think to yourself, I could swing this in a coach seat. If I had like a backpack oh. full of granola bars and no. like 
a water bottle. <laughs> oh, no. No. And I did not get one of the little roomettes. And the locomotive broke somewhere in Northern California. And uh, it ended up taking about 48 hours. I got off the train like in Van Nuys at like three in the morning, which was probably inadvisable uh, just because I was sick of being on it. And I didn't want to wait to get to the central LA station uh, to just like get in a lift to my destination. But, um, and the whole reason I took the train was I wanted to see the sunset at Santa Barbara, like on the part of the coast where only the train goes, you know, the one doesn't go there. Yeah. And because of the delay, it was pitch black going through that section. Oh, and the boy. conductor came over the PA and was like, because our locomotive broke, we're going to turn off the lights to see if we can make it over this hill. And I was like, I made a mistake. It was a Joe Bluth. I made a huge mistake moment. Yeah, but- so get a roomette when you you come see me in Seattle. Okay. All right. Or I'll just I'll just drive up. I like driving. I like driving no, the coast. Look, we're gonna be in a Biden administration. It will be your patriotic duty to ride the Amtrak. He's going to make the Amtrak semi acceptable again. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, like, if Joe Biden does nothing but create like a nationwide rail network, I'll be like kinda into that. <laughs> Yeah, he'll be like, FDR to me if he if he just makes trains like like make more sense as a mode of transportation in our country. Is this a, is is this a, a stereotype that has proved? I think I think trans women love trains. Why is that? Can I we don't know. figure it out? Because every trans woman I know is obsessed with trains, and I I know that it's true, but I don't know why. Like the pickle thing, there's like ostensibly a biological reason for that, having to yeah. do with like spironolactone affecting your salt uptake. But the train thing has got to be some like psychoanalytic thing that I don't get, and yet I'm obsessed with trains. I. I want trains to be like they are in Europe. The happiest I've ever been was a month that I spent between England, France, and Spain. And you can just be like, I want to go to Paris today. And then four hours later, you can be in Paris riding in comfort the whole time on a very fast train. Um, I don't know. I think it's just our love for communal action, honestly. That or when we were small children and were forced to blend in as quote unquote boys, trains were an easy way to do that. Mm, and yes. this is like this is like us reliving a primal wound, but trying to fix it by making the nation's rail network stronger. You know what I loved about the Amtrak ride? Speaking mm. of this and mm. speaking of it as an experience as like an openly trans woman was when you go to the dining car, which you know, it will probably take eight months for that experience to return. Space is at a premium. So if you're traveling solo or even as a couple, like you're going to get seated with other people. You're going to mm-hmm. get seated with like a like a traveling computer salesman of the type that you thought like no longer existed. Like you're going to meet people from many different walks of life and you're going to have to figure out how to hold space with them as someone who's like, you know, digested five years worth of queer theory you're gonna have to figure out how to talk to like like you know the like retired like nuclear energy guy you know like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it has to happen and i think i think that our our 
project should be called Trans on Trains. And we this has been a pet project of mine. I think I've pitched it to a couple of equally train-obsessed trans women friends, but we should create a series where trans Amtrak should sponsor trans women to ride trains and have conversations with people. Filmed Anthony Bourdain parts unknown style. Yes, I'm into this. Let's make this happen. Also, if any trans women want to collaborate with me on my uh, series of, of, of trans lady romances, um, because I feel like should represent more of the community than my overriding desire. To Are you making like a box set? Are these going to, or these, is this I don't audio? know. I don't know. What do you, what, like, I, I actually, I actually have an idea that I hope to pull off next Christmas for a, uh, a Christmas rom-com about two trans women who fall in love. That will be a, you've got male riff. And I think I'm going to try and do it for, for an audio form in Christmas twenty. 21 so look forward to that everybody yeah a very a very long distance plug a plug this is like this is like when it hasn't been created yet this is like when you go to see jurassic park and they would have a trailer for the flintstones in front of it and you'd be like oh boy 1994 is gonna rule (laughs) i'll i'll say now go in in 2030 go see my award-winning trilogy of of movies that i have not yet made um, but we'll make, I'm sure. The the, tra- the trains about. Yes, <laughs> the train trilogy. Well, you know, I want it to be like, have you seen the trip movies with um, those two English yeah. comedians, Steve uh-huh. Coogan? Uh-huh. Yeah. I love those. The whole thing is just like, they're just vibing and doing impersonations. Let's do that. Let's just drive around and film each other and just like have a good time. We're beloved media figures. We can make this happen. And instead of a Michael Caine impersonation, the only impersonation I'll do is the case to Jimmy Stewart one, which wasn't even a case to as Jimmy Stewart one. It was just, I was just doing Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> to be clear. I was just Jimmy Stewart doing Jimmy Stewart lines. This is kind of a half-hearted Jimmy Stewart. And that's great. Like, that's great. I, I love it for you. You know what, though? We are like 10 minutes over now. I think we did it. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I muted myself for a second. Yes, we got there. We got there. Even with pauses edited out, we made it happen. Take that regular episode. Emily, where can people find you and your work and how can they support your work in this happiest season time? You can find my work at Vox.com. I write there frequently. Uh, My Twitter handle is twitter.com slash emilyvdw, twitter.com slash emilyvdw. My podcast, Arden, is a scripted fiction podcast about two queer women who solve cold cases together. That is just about to wrap up its second season. Our season finale is December 28th. You can buy my book, Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files, and you can subscribe to my newsletter at emilyvdw.substack.com. I just got so many irons in the fire. That's what I'm up to. That's my that's my happiest season when I don't have to think about my trauma because I'm so busy. And um, regular listeners, you can subscribe on various services. You can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts so that more people find our podcast. Give them this year the gift of knowing that our podcast exists. Um, and follow us on Twitter at Y-S-S-T-O-G. And I'm so excited for my co hosts to listen to this episode that went totally off the rails and um i hope they're not too disappointed with me i know they won't be for rambling and straying they won't be we 
we talked about uh, the holiday and ended up talking about the Animorphs movie in this last episode. And it was so important that you and I talk about all of these mini topics. The people were demanding it. You know, I was getting messages, emails. When are you and Emily Vanderwerf going to, yeah, talk about Amtrak? Samantha, I really would love for us to be better friends. And one thing that I love about us being better friends is that we can always turn it into content. Yes. Well, if not on this podcast, uh, anywhere is welcome. I love friendship. I love content less than friendship, but content makes money and money provides chicken wings for me. So great ending. I feel really suffocated in the closet that you shoved me back into. You agreed to this. Yeah, we were practically already here. Can you please be quiet? I was going to 